to the Delingport with me, James Delingport. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's <laughs> special guest, but I really am. But before I introduce her, a quick word about some of our sponsors. Uh, if you want to buy gold, and I really think you should, I think you'd be insane not to, you know, I'm not a financial advisor, but if you don't own, own gold, you're bonkers. Um, there are two ways of doing it. Either you go through the Pure Gold Company, which sells you bullion delivered to your door, gold and silver bullion, or stores it in a vault for you. Or you can take the other route, which is a company called Monetary Metals. Um, and what they do is they, bizarrely, but, it, but I, I've looked into it and I was convinced, they are able to pay you interest on your gold holding, which is different from if you have it in a vault where you have to pay a storage fee. Anyway, have a look at the blurb below my blogs, uh, my blogs and uh, by my um, podcast and you can find more details. Also, if you want to sponsor this podcast, if you want to advertise your, your product on my podcast, which, which lots of people have done, you know, Hunter and Gather did it. Um, one chap advertising his properties in Scotland did it. You too can do it. Just contact me. James Stellingpole at iCloud.com. And, um, yeah, you can reach an audience of about, I think we're about 40,000. 40,000 wonderful, loyal, um, on-message, red-pilled people. If you want to reach them, do that. Anyway, Eva K. Bartlett. I am so excited. I really am to have you back on the podcast. It's quite, it's quite difficult pinning you down because you're a busy girl. I mean, you're often heading off to the front line to do insanely brave things. Oh, well, you, you caught me at a quiet time. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, it's good to see you back in the comfort of your, what, what do you call that, a dacha that you live in? You know, it, it is uh, in a region of dachas, and technically it is a dacha, but people do live here full time around in this district as well. So um, uh, it's my home for now. I'm renting it uh, and it's, it's fine for me. Uh, but yeah, technically a dacha. Um, now, when I, when I talked about your bravery, um, I, was, I was not using that word lightly. You, you've been to the Donbass, uh, the front line of this horrible, horrible war. Is it eight times now? Uh, nine times now. First time in uh, September 2019 and then um, another eight times from March until April this year. Whoa. Well, yeah. I'm obviously going to ask you. Um, for your insights into what into what is really going on over there, because as you know, the stuff we get in the West, in the Western media, I, I mean, I think it's a joke that we we use Soviet era Pravda as an example of of the kind of the antithesis of our own free and frank and fearless media, when actually we've got something at least as bad as Soviet era after over here we just get nothing but wall-to-wall three-letter agency propaganda absolutely you know and i i might make this point i might forget this point later so i'll make it now uh i'm sure you're aware of uh, canadian broadcasting corporation canada's state media um state-funded media nonetheless and uh at some point mid summer uh, summer last year uh independent media uh in canada contacted cbc and other main uh, western corporate media to say hey we've just learned there's a canadian me on ukraine's kill list miratvoritz and now um i've been on there since my first visit to donbass in 2019 
and you know whatever it is what it is it's a horrible list there's over 300 children on it um and you know it has been a list in which uh people whose names have been put on there have been killed presumably by ukrainian um intelligence uh, notably ukrainian journalists dissidents and citizens normal people anyway so this media contacted cbc and said like you know we're concerned we want to raise the alarm you know canada's so concerned about especially about female journalists right uh, CBC did contact me uh, about a week later, um, but not in uh, not with any mention of the kill list, Miratvoritz. Um, instead, they said, you know, they wanted to talk to me about my reporting and my participation in a war crimes tribunal in Moscow. Um, I didn't take the bait because having been smeared by Western corporate media since 2016, I'm well aware of their tactics. They never want to have a frank and honest conversation. They cherry pick at best and distort your words. So I just simply didn't take the bait. They came out with a really disgusting production, including this scary music to depict what a uh, evil person I am. And, uh, you know, all the things that they said about me for Syria, they're saying about me for my reporting <clears throat> about civilians and the sufferings of civilians from the Donbass. And um, what's very interesting about this that piece they came out with is not Okay, so they wanted to Im implicate me as being like a war crimes denier, a genocide denier, you know, all these terms that they're um, uh, directing towards Russia for defending its its own sovereignty and its civilians in the Donbass. But moreover, um, they they drew directly from my entry on Miratvoritz. And the reason I know that is because I did participate in a tribunal on Ukrainian war crimes back in um, March uh, last year in Moscow. And it was organized by Maxim Grigorian, an independent Russian researcher who's done fantastic research in Syria and now in the Donbass. Um, I participated in it. I spoke about what I'd seen at that point, bearing in mind this was March last year, and I've seen a lot more since, um, of Ukraine's war crimes. And... Uh, the interesting thing about the CBC publication or smear piece on me is that um, they they stated it was in April and it wasn't. There was maybe another one in April, but I participated in the March one. They have a screenshot um, from the link where um, the whole um, meeting uh, was um, aired. Uh, so I can't remember which Russian site. And if you go to that site, which I did, you can you can clarify that indeed it took place in March. I think March 11th or something like that. They said it was in April, and where did they get that information from the Miratvoritz entry on me? So not only did they completely ignore any mention of, of a Canadian journalist uh, being put on a kill list simply for the crime of reporting from a side that, you know, Canada doesn't want to shed light on, but they also drew from that kill list um, to do their smear on me. And now, the other point I wanted to make about that is... Um, I don't feel in the climate of Canada right now that I could go back uh, safely. Um, I would potentially risk being thrown in jail. Um, I believe the Canadian government, which supports the Nazis in Ukraine and has done so since the illegal coup in 2014 and has armed them and is very aware of that they're arming Nazi um, elements in Ukraine. I believe the government, and, and I'm sure you're very well aware, James, that like, I think it was in 2021, forgive my dates if I'm wrong, when the Freedom Convoy was going on in Canada and supporters of that convoy that were simply saying, we want to work without having to be forced to take the vaccine, um, supporters of that convoy had their um, bank accounts shut down. So, you know, there's the risk, a mild risk of having my bank account shut down. We're already closed it, so that doesn't matter now. But I think this government could actually um, say, well, this is a genocide denier, war crimes apologist, et cetera, et cetera, which I'm not. I expose Ukrainian war crimes um, and throw me in jail.
uh, or worse, uh, by by flagging my name to you know CBC listeners, which might include um, some of the large population of, of extremists that support the the Banderites in Ukraine. Um, uh, if I were to go back to Canada, I don't feel I would be safe, and I don't feel the government or security services would protect me. Yes. Am I right in thinking that Canada has got the highest um, population of Ukrainians outside Ukraine? I believe that's correct, and I would I would highly recommend. There's a couple of um, excellent articles talking about the history of Canada and and the Banderites. There's one by Thierry Maison, and I believe it is actually called Canada and and the Banderites or something like that. And it can give you more specific numbers on you know how big this population is and and how. Uh, powerful the Ukrainian lobby is in Canada. And there's another article now, unfortunately, I don't remember the name of the authors, but I can send you the link. And it talks about our Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland herself, and her grandfather um, working as a Nazi um, propagandist, uh, a grandfather of whom she's very proud. And uh, when in February 2022, Russia commenced the what it calls its special military operation, Freeland was seen in a protest, I don't remember which city, whether Ottawa or Toronto, holding um, one of the, the Nazi flags, one of the Banderite flags, a UPA flag, I believe it was. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it, the, the, there are, uh, back to your question, amongst uh, Canadian citizens, there are uh, Ukrainian Canadians, some of whom, not all of whom, of course, hold these extremist ideologies. And then um, amongst the politicians, we have Christia Freeland, who's deputy PM. Yeah, doesn't that make you feel comfortable? I, I've got to ask you, actually, even before we go on, um, that given the way that we in the West have been propagandized, and I've, I mean, I've made myself very unpopular at parties doing this. I've, I've had people laugh in my face when I, when I just try and explain a few very simple facts about about this 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 current war i talk about the people being burned alive in odessa for example yeah. um and i think in most cases what i find is that they look at me like i'm mad that this is this is kind of crazy russian it's always putin propaganda all i'm doing is regurgitating putin propaganda and these people to a man would would consider somebody like you to be a a, a Putin apologist. You're 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 a, you're a propagandist, and you're, you're you're some kind of rogue rogue journalist who, for whatever crazy reason, has gone out to shill for the evil Russians. How would you? Is there anything you you can say to respond to that? I mean, uh, you say they regurgitate these talking points, and they're literally regurgitating CIA talking points, right? I mean. I'm sure they throw in conspiracy theorists as well. Or when, MI6 when um, in, in this country's case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as for, you know, myself being called those things, um, I've been called every name in the book for beginning in Syria. Like I said, I think I mentioned since late 2016, um, smeared by Western corporate media, smeared by politicians, called every name, uh, Assad propagandist, Assad apologist, Kremlin stooge, Syrian stooge, you know, all the names that y you can think of they don't affect me because I know I'm reporting honestly and the focus of my reporting in Syria, in Palestine, in the Donbass has always been, um, with very few exceptions, 
to interview civilians who are affected by the wars that the West has created and continues to stoke. That's the focus. So going to places that are being shelled, in the, in the case of the Donbass, by Ukrainian forces, with mostly, most often with Western weapons, interviewing people who have been interviewed, or unfortunately documenting the dead. And you know, over the course of last year, I would have seen three or four dozen dead, mangled bodies, body parts littered in the streets. You know, we, you, as you mentioned at the beginning, you're not hearing about these things in the West because the, our Western media won't cover it. I was literally seeing the body parts and smelling the stench of dead bodies. Um, and that's my, that's what I do. That's what I report. I go somewhere. I don't go somewhere with a cherry pick narrative. And I, I want to add a point to that in a moment. I go somewhere when something happens, I report it. Maybe I go somewhere and I have an idea of something I want to report on. For example, the reconstruction in Mariupol or the issue of um, the water disruption in the Donbass because Ukraine has attacked water facilities. So people were literally, myself included, hauling water in five liter jugs in order simply to be able to clean yourself or clean, you know, whatever, bathe, flush a toilet. Um, the water situation was very critical over the course of last year. So there were times when I would go to the Donbass and I had something in mind that I wanted to investigate or I wanted to in interview people about. <clears throat> but if something happened, then I, I, that was my focus. So like in September of last year, I mentioned, I'm sorry to go on about this, but I think it needs to be said in September of last year, in the space of five days, 26 civilians were torn apart in central Donetsk, not a military area. There were no military targets there. These were uh, city streets. Um, there was a market uh, right next to a market where a trolley bus or a streetcar, whatever you want to call it, was going by. A Ukrainian shell hit that bus, burning it out, and two people inside were killed. Four more people splayed on the ground, uh, body parts all around. That was just uh, on one day. Another day, 13 people were killed, and it was a, it, just a horrific scene. Um, and that was my focus when I was there, was, was documenting that. Or in, um, in late July, when Ukraine uh, fired um, missiles containing over 300 tiny mines, like this, the size of like a lighter or a tube of lipstick or whatever, um, petal mines, uh, Lipistock in Russian. And these mines are so tiny and their design is such that they, they glide to the ground and most of the time do not detonate until they've stepped on, until somebody handles them. And uh, who will handle them if they don't know better? Children or maybe elderly who don't see well or don't understand what they are. Uh, until now, 128 civilians have been maimed by these mimes, including 11 children, and three have been killed as, as a result of their injuries. And these mines were littered in the center of Donetsk, in parks, around apartment buildings, in, um, in, in, in the outskirts as well, the suburbs of Donetsk. And they're still affecting people now because um, they're very hard to detect. Even if an area has been cleared, if the mine, for example, had initially landed in a tree or on a rooftop and it, it's windy or it rains, it can shift positions and then suddenly an area that has been deemed safe is now not safe. So, I mean, these are the types of things, uh, amongst many others, that I'm reporting on. And um, I do not get any talking points from the, from the Kremlin. When I contribute articles to RT, it's after I've already gone to a place and after I've already done my own videos for my, my Telegram channel, for, for YouTube, for wherever I want to publish it. And then I pitch to RT. I say, hey, I'd like to write about this. Will you take it? They don't always say yes. And it's not a matter of censorship. It's just, you know how media works. Sometimes if something is not newsly, it's not timely, it's just not worth uh, being in the media. I don't like that aspect of media. But in, 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 in any case, it's me who says, I want to write this. I get no directives from anyone on what to write. 
you know? So this whole nonsense that um, you're a Kremlin apologist or Kremlin stooge or any, any of these silly names they, they make up to, to terrify people from, from talking, from having an opinion, from doing research, from sharing the research of other people. That's the, that's the intent of these names, right? It's just to shut you up. Um, they, they have no basis in reality uh, when I, when, in terms of my own reporting because I'm, I'm reporting what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. And, uh, and, and also, I'd, I'd just like to know, you know, it's not just yourself and myself and people who either have spent a lot of time in the region or done a lot of research on the region. You also have, like, I'm sure Colonel Douglas McGregor, an American patriot, who um, I, I don't remember how many years he served, but he certainly is an intelligent man. He's been doing excellent um, commentary and analysis on the situation in, in Ukraine and Donbass and Russia in general. I'm sure they've called him a Kremlin stooge and Putin apologist, you know? Uh, Scott Ritter the same like anybody who voices opinion will be called that so I think um, back to what you're saying like uh, no, I don't need to tell you I know you're um, a strong spirited person but anybody listening you know if you're getting called these comments for doing research and having a discussion with somebody and trying to open someone's mind you know don't be deterred by it if the person is intentionally calling you that then I suppose the only thing is they're probably not going to change their opinion or their tactic but it doesn't mean that that you know by virtue of what you're uh, reporting, that you are what they're calling you. It's just a, a very childish slur. Yeah. Um, I've probably asked you this before, but I think it was 2021 where we last. In fact, I, I was looking at our old email exchanges, uh -huh. and it was really interesting. It captured the, the mood of a period which we've almost blanked from our memories, where you and I were wondering, and I'm sure everyone was at the time, whether this was the end of our freedoms already. It was like it felt everything was going to be going to be closed down. We were never going to be let out of our lockdowns again. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we've been granted a temporary reprieve. Maybe we'll talk about that late, later on. But, but what I wanted to ask you was, um, was there ever a time in your life when you, you thought, as I used to think, that the West were, were the goodies? I, um, I'm always very honest about the fact that my political awakening didn't happen until my late 20s. So I went until that point being not a bad person, not a mean person, but a very naive and gullible and ignorant person. So I suppose at that point, I probably thought, yeah, I live in a good country. Canada is a great place to live. You know, my government supports us. We have, you know, I probably thought all the stuff that most Westerners think about their own countries. I was never like extremely like like over the top my country's the best in the world type of thing but I probably thought some some of the basic things that we're told to believe about our countries um, but that started to change after I first went to Palestine and saw the horrible realities uh, that Palestinians live under occupation and then uh, after uh, eight months in the West Bank and then a subsequent three years in Gaza becoming intimately familiar not only with those horrible realities and uh, you know, war and white phosphorus and point-blank assassinations, all that done by the Israelis against Palestinian civilians, but then about how the media would just completely whitewash it. And then I, I grew to see, after going to Syria 15 times since 2014, the same thing. And that's when I started to understand, oh, okay, wait, like that, my political, I'm still learning, of course, I have a lot to learn, but that's when I started to kind of connect the dots and realize, okay, the West always purports to be free and democratic and 
um, back to what you're saying at the very beginning, you know, only in the West can you have free and open media, supposedly. They, they purport all these things, but um, having spent a lot of time in the East, uh, I see that, no, absolutely not, that's not the truth. And, I mean, if, 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 if the West are the goodies, why do they continually foment wars? Why do they fund, Al literally fund, Al-Qaeda? Uh, why do they whitewash the crimes of Al-Qaeda? Why the BBC, if you remember, uh, what year was that? Hmm, I don't remember the year. Maybe, let's say, 2015, maybe earlier. If you remember, the BBC um, humanized a man named Abu Sakr, who took, who, who, um, there was a dead Syrian soldier, soldier, and he put his hand into the chest of the soldier and took out an organ. Some say it was a lung, some say it was a heart, and bit into it. You know, a horrible act um, of cannibalism meant to, I guess, terrorize and install fear in people's hearts. And the BBC interviewed him and they basically said, oh, you poor thing, like something terrible must have happened to you. Please tell us about this horrible regime that drove you to such an act. We know you're a good person kind of thing. You know, it's just like they, the media knows no, um, there's no depth they won't stoop to uh, in order to cover up the crimes uh, that are being um, either committed by the West or allowed and enabled and um, supported by the West. I've, I, I watched this fascinating interview, um, you may have seen it, uh, with Tucker Carlson and um, Doug, Douglas McGregor. Um, and it was, I mean, it was terrifying terrifying in its implications that that the US has spent trillions of dollars on this on this war um, that and the figures that that McGregor gave he reckoned that around 400,000 Ukrainians had been killed as against I think he said about 50,000 might have been 40,000 40,000 because I remember uh, it was so, like a, a tenfold. Yeah, ten Ukrainians for every one Russian so soldier. And I, I think probably like me, you're thinking, I don't want any of these people to die. I certainly Absolutely. don't want young, terrified, uh, disabled or, or, or sick uh, these days, Ukrainian conscripts dragged from their homes to get, be sent out into the meat grinder. I, I don't want them to die. I don't want the Russians, Russians to die. Yeah. Um, and yet this war grinds on, propped up, I think, by, by NATO. Yeah, and uh, if I may also, um, uh, that's a sentiment, the not wanting people to die or, or, or suffer. That's a sentiment I've heard from people in the line of fire in Donbass. You know, you ask them, at least in my experience when I've asked them, something like, and I try to keep the questions kind of general, just like, do you have any friends in Ukraine? Do you hate Ukrainians? And everybody I've asked some rendition of that question to are like, no, we, we have no problem with Ukrainians. You know, we always used to travel there. Some, some went to school there, some summer vacationed wherever, you know, in different areas of Ukraine. And they always, uh, the people I've spoken to have said, like, especially even uh, I, I, before when I said my focus has almost exclusively been the suffering of civilians. There has there was one time where I did go to frontline and interview commanders of one of the um, Donbass brigades. 
and I asked them the question as well, and they also said the same thing, like, we don't hate Ukrainians, you know, same thing. The only thing they said is, we want soldiers, go home. That This is the commanders that said that. They just said, idu dom, go home. Uh, and they're very aware, they can discern, just like in my experience, uh, Syrians as well, they can discern between your average American, your average Ukrainian, and the powers that are pushing and funding this war, you know, or these wars, rather. Um, so I think it's important to to emphasize, at least in my experience, both in the Donbass and <clears throat> here in, in Moscow Oblast, when I talk to people about the situation, I have not seen <clears throat> the hatred that Russians are depicted as being hateful. I haven't seen that. I've seen <clears throat> people being concerned about the war, <laughs> excuse me, about both sides, but also being aware of why this is happening. And I think the other thing uh, Western commentators refuse to acknowledge is that Russia was facing and is facing an existential threat. That is something you'll find Colonel Douglas McGregor saying. And all these people who said Russia started this war in 2022, again, they always omit the previous eight years. And you'll have people like McGregor, or there was a, a few great articles by, um, what was his name, the Swiss uh, former intelligence. Jacques Beau. Yeah, he did some great articles that were republished in English, and he, he laid out the chron uh, chronology of events, including the increase of Ukraine's shelling of the Donbass prior to February 24th when Russia started its special military operation. And he also laid out the fact, you know, that again, something Western commentators conveniently ignore is the, the Minsk Accords, which, uh, which Russia was pushing both sides to adhere to, and which we learned sometime last year, Merkel, Macron, Holland, they all said, well, we never intended to adhere to them. We were just buying Ukraine time to build up its uh, military, and that that was effective, wasn't it? So um, I've kind of gone astray from your question, but I, I just wanted to make that point about, I haven't seen the hatred. I'm sure there are people here that, that hate Ukrainians, but in my experience, I haven't seen it widespread. Um, but then, oh, you were talking about, yeah, not wanting people to die. To die. You know, I had a, my Telegram channel kind of grew a little bit uh, over the course of last year, maybe because I was reporting from the Donbass and people wanted firsthand information. For whatever reason, it grew. Um, but at some point, I had to close my comment section, um, not, not because I want to be like a tyrant and not allow freedom of speech, but I got sick of hearing... In general, it was mostly Westerners I would see doing it, saying, oh, you just need to bomb the hell out of Kiev. You just need to destroy Kiev. You need to kill every Ukrainian. I'm like, I don't want, I don't want to hear that, you know. Nobody wants to hear that. What, who the hell are you, pardon my language, but who are you to be saying such horrible things, you know. You're, are, are you sitting far from a front line? Are you sitting far from the mangled bodies, making these horrible comments, calling for death? Nobody, nobody wants death. And uh, Russia did everything to uh, avoid this, you know. And again... It's not just me sitting in Moscow Oblast saying it. You have these American patriots like McGregor or you have uh, Jacques Baud also saying that, making, and many, many more people who've just simply done the research saying this was an avoidable war. And it, it, even when Russia offered, you know, a peace agreement, Scott Ritter was making that point in a recent interview. Um, he was like, President Putin was far more generous than I would have been, you know. So it's just, uh, it's, back to your question, yeah, it's, um, it's uh, this all could have been avoided, and, and and nobody wants to see death. Nobody except um, the the war profiteers um, in the West. So just just for people coming to this fresh, who don't know what to think about the war, just just give me very briefly 
the the potted history of the run up to the war. Why 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 Russia went into Ukraine? <clears throat> Well, um, in, in brief, we have the, the coup in 2014. You mentioned some of the horrific events around that time, like the Odessa massacre of at least 48 civilians um, burned alive in the trade center in Odessa. Not only burned alive, some were point blank assassinated. Really horrific scenes at that time. But um, by whom? Right. Who, who was killing these people and why? That's the thing. Now, uh, at the time, um, my impression was it was, uh, it was, I didn't actually have a clear impression. It was, it was allowed by the, the Ukrainian government. It was allowed by the new um, coup government. In any case, extreme nationalists, let's say, Ukrainian nationalists, supporting the nationalist ideology, supporting the this Banderite um, Nazi ideology. And um, when I went to the Donbass in September 2019, and spoke with civilians there, of course, through the help of a translator, um, I would ask them very simple questions like, you know, who's bombing you? Because I wanted to hear what their opinion was, you know, and they were like, of course, we know it's Ukraine. They've been bombing us since 2014. Uh, and I, I always, I still ask them this question over the course of last year into this year, why is Ukraine bombing you? Often they'll say, well, they don't consider us human because we're ethnic Russians. Well, if you follow some of these Ukrainian telegram channels, you'll see that that, that is the mindset of some Ukrainians. They, they don't consider Russians humans. They have all sorts of names for Russians and um, believe they should be killed. Um, but I would also ask them, you know, what did you want in 2014? Like you, you wanted to break away people. The West called them breakaway republics. Um, the people I spoke with said, including at the time I did interview some um, soldiers in the Donbass uh, militias, and they said, you know, we just didn't want what was happening in Kiev and Odessa. We are Russian, and we knew we'd be persecuted. We wanted to be able to speak our language without being persecuted. So that was uh, from at least the people I've spoken with, and then reading on that since. Initially, I believe uh, most of the people in the Donbass just wanted to be free, far away from what was happening, the, the extreme um, uh, nationalism and rise of Nazism. In, in the rest of Ukraine, and so they wanted to be independent. And, um, Russia didn't recognize their independence until February last year. So for all the people that say, oh, well, Russia shouldn't have invaded in, in 2014, well, they didn't. Um, there were perhaps Russian volunteers, people who, I met one of them, uh, who had already done his military service, who was no longer an active member of the Russian military, who went in his own capacity to the Donbass to volunteer. And at the time when I asked him in 2019, you know, why did you decide to come here and, 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 as he put it, defend the Donbass, he said, well, first of all, these are my people, but also I don't want what's happening here to come to Russia. And I think that's the sentiment of many people um, who, who support, uh, you know, um, fighting for the, 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 the security and future of the people of the Donbass. Um, so over the course of eight years, you know, we had the Minsk Accords, uh, which basically prohibited the use of heavy weapons, and there were a bunch of guidelines which um, it, Ukraine violated. And there was actually the what was the acronym of the European uh, monitors? O O O I forget the name. O S C C or something like that. The the four letter acronym for the monitors who were supposed to monitor ceasefire violations on either side. And at the time in 2019, when I went, I went to this one village, Gorlevka, which is, um, sorry, Gorlevka's a city. I went to this, the village of Zaitsevo, and the woman there, the like the the town head, said, 
They'd never known peace since 2014. She said, none of the peace agreements reached them, that Ukraine was shelling on a nearly daily basis. I saw, at that time, I saw a house that had been hit a day or two prior that was still smoldering after burning out. She basically described the Ukrainian forces as destroying the houses, house by house, street by street. Uh, so that's just one example, you know, of an area that was under Ukrainian fire all the time. But this was going on for eight years. Um, and then, in as I mentioned earlier, uh, referring to the Jack Bow article, in uh, February prior to Russia launching its special military operation, uh, now he lays out in that article how Russia had intel that Ukraine was planning to launch a, ma launch a ma massive, excuse me, offensive against the Donbass. And at that point, uh, Russia for whatever many reasons, um, decided, okay, well, the peace route hasn't worked, and uh, we're going to, I mean, uh, I think it would be best for people to listen to President Putin's speech, because I don't want to misquote him, but basically, uh, all avenues to reaching a peaceful uh, solution had been um, not met by Ukraine in the West, and Russia decided it was time to um, intervene, which is just ironic, because again, the West claims that Russia intervened in 2014. And it was, if anyone was intervening, it was the West that continued to um, arm Ukraine and uh, whitewash their crimes. Um, how is the war going? I mean, you've, you've been to the front line. What's it, what's it like? What do you see? Well, I, I want to correct you there. I, I mentioned I've been to a front line um, and to interview some uh, member, uh, commanders in, in one of the battalions. Um, but most of my reporting has been from areas under Ukrainian shelling. So if you if you want frontline reporting, there's certainly a number of excellent Russian reporters. Patrick Lancaster does a lot of frontline reporting as well. My focus is more uh, civilians. There there are a couple of reasons for that. I lacked the language uh, skills. I'm, I'm getting better in Russian now, but you know when I first started going there, I didn't speak any. There's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, you can take a translator, but I think I'm I'm uh, I'm I wasn't equipped uh, in terms of like having, uh, and until this year, I wasn't equipped to have, with having um, uh, body armor or stuff like that. I never had it in Palestine or Syria. But in terms of what I saw when I went to the front line, well, I mean, I saw soldiers that are living a very difficult life, um, not a luxurious life by any means, of course, but they, when I would ask them, what is their motivation? Why are they fighting? It's, again, I think it's it's so similar in, in, in pretty well every case, at least that I've, a place that I've been to, when you're defending your homeland, then uh, it's not a question of you know luxury or you know whether you defend or not. It's it's your, it's a question of your existence. Um, but in terms of what it's like in, in um, it sh what it shouldn't be like, it, Donetsk is a, a city um, that is not on the front lines, and yet uh, over the course of last year, as I said to you, going there um, every month. Well, I actually had to look and remind myself like um, the, the chronology of when I was there. So in April, um, in March, I went there with the Ministry of Defense delegation. And I think it's important to mention that it was two days. What was interesting about that visit is that there we visited areas that had been recently liberated in both the, Don, the um, Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic. And so there we were seeing Russian humanitarian aid being given out. And I know how the West framed that. They, they framed it as, oh, this is just, you know, staging, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I saw people who were very grateful for that aid. Um, one of the places we went to, a city named Volnavakha, is about halfway between Donetsk and Mariupol. 
and it was it was I, would, I don't want to say it was completely destroyed nor uh, in contrast to what the Western corporate media say was Mariupol badly damaged you could say some areas not all areas uh, but what was interesting about um, Volnavaja we saw the main hospital which had been pretty much destroyed the um, chief uh, physician there told us um, uh, Ukrainian forces had occupied the hospital and had mined the ICU before leaving um, and when I went back on subsequent visits, I met some other staff who told me uh, before any Russian forces entered Volnavaja, Ukrainian forces were firing in the hospital. Uh, and this was a common theme that we heard from Mariupol, uh, that Ukrainian forces were occupying residential buildings and were also firing upon residential buildings uh, for whatever reason, probably mostly to um, incriminate Russia maybe also a sense of sadism. I don't know all their motivations, but it's well documented. They did this in, in many areas that they occupied. So it was interesting to go back to Volnavaka later and see, you know, it wasn't this one chief physician who claimed this, but other employees in that hospital. One thing I wanted to mention earlier is that um, in going uh, in March on this Ministry of Defense delegation, there were two French mainstream channels that were on that delegation. So it wasn't only so-called Kremlin stooges. They saw and heard everything I saw, um, but they omitted everything I saw and heard. We went to the site of a March 14th massive, it's called a Tachka U uh, missile, um, which contains, um, uh, what's it called, cluster bombs, cluster munitions. And on March 14th in 2022, Ukraine had fired this Tachka U and air defense had, um, had intercepted some of the clusters, but not all. 21 civilians were killed, and this was the center of Donetsk. So we went to that site, there were photographs still up. It was like, when we were there, it was maybe two weeks later. So you could see the impact of where the, the bomblets had landed. You could see the photos of the people at the time, that you know, grief-stricken people. Um, and we, we heard from Denis Pushilin also, who spoke of that day, who spoke of the eight years of the war. We went to the various liberated areas. We also spoke to, I'm blanking on his name, the head of the Lugansk People's Republic. And these people, these two French channels, they included none of that. The only thing they said was, this is what Russia wants us to see in terms of the humanitarian aid. So, you know, in terms of like Western reporting, they'll often say, and I saw this with Syria, there's many parallels between reporting on Syria and reporting on uh, Donbass or the or Ukraine proper. Uh, they'll often say like, well, we can't report because we're not allowed to go there. But in the case that they are um, enabled to go there, they're given visas or they're taken in this case on a delegation to see and, and talk with people. They just don't report honestly because it doesn't fit their narrative. So that's that's that's, uh, that's that one visit. But um, if you sound like you look like you wanted to make a point there. Well, that's really interesting because you've you've raised a point there that I find really puzzling, which is as a, as somebody who spent his his oh, your doggy, as somebody who spent his life most of his working life as a journalist, I used to think that the war correspondents were the coolest of the cool. These were people who, who, they were nobody's bitch. They just went out there to try and find out the truth. And they were, they were fearless and they lived on the edge. But ultimately what they wanted to get out at whatever cost was the truth of what was happening. And yet I'm, I read some of the reports um, that, that you see in the, in the UK media, in the mainstream media. Um, and 
it reads to me like the purest propaganda. And I'm, I'm thinking, on, on what level are these people aware that they are lying on behalf of the, with the forces mm. um, pushing, you know, pushing the Western, the Western war effort? How much, how much are they conscious of what they're doing, do you think? I would, I would wager most of them are very aware and very conscious. Now, I want to mention Syria and also something more recent from my April visit uh, to uh, the Donbass People's Republic, um, or it's now Donbass, uh, a part of Russia. But um, in, in, in terms of Syria, um, both in my reporting and my dear friend and colleague Vanessa Beely, who sends her best wishes to you, by the way, um, we were very well aware of many instances which uh, Western journalists were in Syria. They had their pre-scripted uh, narrative. They completely ignored what they saw around them. Uh, and um, so they chose willfully to continue with their prescriptive narrative. There's one example, Lise Doucet, BBC, April 2014, my first visit to Syria. A terrorist occupying eastern Ghouta, east of Damascus, shelled as they were doing all the time. They were constantly shelling Damascus, civilian areas. They, sh they shelled a school in the old city. Uh, they, they killed one child and injured over 60. Uh, I went with others to the French hospital, which was treating many of the children. I took some footage. I tried to get their names, tried to show the civilian suffering, which is usually you know, what I try to do. Lise say was there. Uh, she was asked by someone, are you going to tell the truth? She nodded her head and said yes. Her later article, which was titled, weirdly, Russian Roulette or something, said, quote, something like, the regime says it was rebels in eastern Ghouta, but locals believe it was the regime. And I use the regime in, air, air, in quotations, of course. I don't call it the regime. It's the Syrian government. Sorry, Booth. Um, but she knew very well. I mean, you spend any time there, and, you know, she was free to walk around. And the terrorists in Eastern Ghouta were shelling us all the time. It was a matter of, really, I suppose roulette is appropriate in that regard. It was a matter of, uh, of luck that you weren't shelled. Um, and so she knew very well. You talk to a local and they'll be like, yeah, they've been shelling us for years. Just like in Donbass, you ask a local, as I did, who's shelling you? Is it Russia, as the media claims? And they'll be like, no, of course, it's Ukraine. So she knew very well. That, that's one example. There are many, many examples of, uh, you know, Vanessa Pert, um, collaborated with this Syrian journalist Rafik Lutif in the making of the, the documentary um, The Veto, in which they describe an incident, I forget which year, it might be 2012, in Homs, in which various Western mainstream media outlets come together to stage an event that never happened um, to incriminate the Syrian government. That's one example. Um, uh, I had an example, yes, from uh, April this year. So I went with uh, journalist Crystal Niant. She lives in uh, the DPR in, in Donetsk. Uh, she's been there for over six years, I believe. Uh, she speaks fluent Russian. And we were interviewing people from Bakhmut or Artyomovsk. And these people were talking about how um, they had been shelled by Ukraine relentlessly. They said they were being shelled by Ukraine and the media was blaming it on Russia and there were no Russian forces within um, the region that could have shelled them. They, 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 they weren't anywhere near. And they said, many of them said to us, they saw Ukrainian and Western journals, they knew they were Western because they were speaking foreign languages. Um, they claimed that these journalists were giving money to the Ukrainian forces uh, to shell the, their buildings and then filming it uh, to then say this is Russians doing it. Now this is their claim, but it was more than one person. 
and uh, they were in, interviewed independently. I, I don't believe that they were given talking points. That, to me, they sounded very credible. And knowing how how um, vitriolic and without morals some Western corporate media journalists can be, I believe it's totally plausible. That is, that is so. How do these people sleep at night? I don't know. I don't know. See, you know, back to the whole name calling. Uh, I don't claim to be perfect. Sometimes I scramble to remember uh, dates or facts, but I know I'm being honest. And that's why I have no problem uh, with my own conscience because I know I'm being honest. I could work harder, maybe, you know, but in terms of how I'm reporting, I'm completely confident in my integrity. How they can report, how they can knowingly lie, how they can cherry pick facts, how they can whitewash heinous crimes that they're aware of. I don't understand that. There was that German journalist, Udolf, uh, I'm sure you know who I mean, I don't remember his last name. Uh, he, he, he used to write for one of the main uh, German papers and uh, he came out with a book at some point, uh, maybe 2014, talking about how he was effectively lying in, in, in exchange for um, perks and benefits. Uh, so I'd, I'd heard that interview, he had an interview in RT, um, but then more recently I came across some excerpt of, of an article he wrote and he was talking about his first foray into like war uh, correspondent i don't know if he was in iraq or where he was but he talked about it's it's really interesting you should try to find it he talked about being with other journalists and seeing them all fill up like jerry cans full of um gas um uh, petrol and he thought oh that's smart you know if we break down in the desert then we're good to go that wasn't the intent <laughs> Um, he said they basically lit fires and staged scenes of like some sort of bombing or whatever, a catastrophe. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like I, um, it's, it's for me, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible, but I, I, I do believe that many, uh, journalists have the incentive to do these things. Wow. I, I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm pretty, pretty naive. Um, before I forget, and this is a bit of a sidetrack, we'll come back in a minute, but um, I'm speaking to you the day after Prigozhin, allegedly. We, <laughs> they, they claim the borders are so burned that they can't identify them. That Prigozhin, the, the head of the, the Wagner Group and um, formerly head chef, <laughs> allegedly, to, to, to President Putin, um, his plane's been brought down with his entourage. What, what, what do you understand as the story behind all that? Uh, first, I want to say I'm, I'm not much prone to speculation because we don't have, you know, any of the facts. We have what's been said. And then there's multiple conflicting reports. Um, the Russian, let's see, whatever the aviation body has said, his name was on the list of passengers. So we have that. We have that the plane went down. We don't have confirmation that confirmation that he actually got on the plane or stayed on the plane or whatever. So there's that. There's that caveat. Um I know a lot of people who say, no, he's definitely dead. Uh, I don't know. I'm just not going to speculate that he's alive or dead. But people, I know some people who are saying that he's dead. Oh, it must have been President Putin because two months prior, uh, Prigozhin staged a coup. And now, my own thought about the coup, I don't have all the facts about that. I don't believe it was an actual attempted coup. It's illogical mm. to think so. I mean, uh, you know, coming from the south, going all the way to Moscow, how many kilometers, like, over a thousand more kilometers. Uh, at any point, Russia, the Russian government and military could have easily stopped that. Uh, I remember one analyst pointing out like for 12 hours, the Russian government was slow to react, which is, you know, 
not something you wouldn't lapse like that if you really believed it was a perceived threat. Um, there are various theories about why that, that coup was allowed to happen. One was that um, it would enable the Russian military to reposition in areas uh, around uh, Voronezh and um, for, like further north from the south, which makes sense. But anyway, in any case, I don't believe it was an actual attempted coup. Plus, whatever you think of Prigozhin, I don't believe he's a stupid man. And you'd have to be mentally retarded, excuse me, but not very intelligent to think that you could storm uh, Moscow and be successful. So if, if you do believe it was a real attempted coup, though, then one of the logic that I, I don't agree with is that the president um, has decided that he was, Prigozhin was, was misbehaving and had to be dealt with. I personally don't believe that. Um, what's happening right now? The BRICS summit is happening right now. And uh, why would, you know, if... Russia wanted to take care of him, whatever, um, at least they might have chosen a time prior to or later, not during the BRICS, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, it, it's illogical to me. And I just don't, I don't see, uh, I think the president's pretty rational. I don't see it being something he would need to do. Some people are saying like he doesn't forgive betrayal and that's why, I don't know. I think there's too much, um, we just don't have all the facts, and I, I, I do. And now I'm speculating, and I just said I, I think it's pointless to speculate. But these are theories people are putting out, and I just don't agree with them. Eva, can I just say uh, I'm I'm so glad that you said that because because that has been my response to when when I first heard about the coup, I thought well, the whole everything that one, one everything that comes out of Ukraine uh, of that conflict is misinformation disinformation mask how do you say maskarovka yeah 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 <laughs> well i think um, you said it correctly <laughs> uh the, the, because um i'm inclined to just on the grounds of plausibility i'm inclined to agree with you that it was much more likely to be about disguising troop movements um than it was about the coup because i i looked at the maps as you did yeah and i thought that is a very, very long road to Moscow. The I've done the route so many. I've, I've done the route well uh, nine times since. Uh, well, let's say eight times since last year, and then once in 2019. You know, and like if you take a train, if you're lucky, you can catch a train from Moscow to Rostov and Don, that is around 16 hours. You know, that's the train. If you're driving, maybe you could do it faster. But then you have all the toll booths that you know. You have a lot of obstacles in the way. It's not very plausible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which inclines me to think that it was uh, this again. This is pure speculation. That it's more likely to be a Western uh, assassination than a yeah. Just to just to sort of put a you know throw a yeah, stone in the nest. I I think yeah that that aligns with the who benefits question that we should always be asking right and. In my mind, Russia doesn't in any way benefit uh, from that, even if people want to say that the president had a grudge. I, I don't believe so. I think I think he's uh, a very rational person. Actually, uh, uh, Scott Ritter, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not like his um, secretary or anything, but he, he's made some good points lately. Um, and he was talking about um, an interview with uh, Soloviev, a media personality here, who was talking about President Putin's personality. And how to, I don't want to misquote, but basically how everything he does, it's in contrast to how Western leadership behave, where it's all about ratings and, how, you know, how people are going to perceive your actions. 
he was saying uh, the president thinks of the country first. Uh, and so even if you want to have this theory that, you know, what's happened was some sort of um, revenge, which I don't I don't believe at all, it doesn't align with um, with with the president. I'm not uh, I'm explaining this badly, but, you know, it doesn't align with his character and motivations, no. I would say. We can't know, of course. So, again, speculation. But um, I think it makes more sense that who would want to have um, this man who represented a very effective um, military group who would want to have him taken out well western intelligence plus it would be like um seen as destabilizing russia right and the west always wants to do that yes i mean i'm not a i'm not a a putin fanboy by by any any stretch but i do get the strong feeling that the version of putin we're sold in the west is a a, a misleading one it's a, it, it's a sort of caricature I mean, yeah. people get castigated. I mean, whenever anyone in the West says, uh, "Well, I'd, I'd I'd rather have a, a leader like Putin than 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 any of our lot," they're 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 accused of being a kind of you know Kremlin Kremlin stooge, or whatever. But actually, I don't get the impression from his decision making that he is, as you as you say, he's he's not led by. Uh, he, uh, well, he doesn't need to, does he? He doesn't. No. He, he doesn't need to get voted in, really. Um, it, it's it's not like he's trying to impress people with with PR campaigns like um, Rishi Sunak or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the the big debate I find in 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 sort of awake circles. I think I think most people who are awake, actually not all, but but probably about two thirds. Uh, are aware of what's really going on in Ukraine. But the big dividing point is, is, is Putin actually a goodie or is he just another, an, another facet of the evil elite that's taking over the world and wants to destroy us all? Does, is he as bad as, as, as the US state, deep state? Have you got a view on that? Uh, I do. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get too much into that, um, but uh, that is not my belief um, for, for many reasons. And again, it has nothing to do with the fact that I contribute to RT. <laughs> I guess I should yeah. make that clear. No, I just inherently don't believe that. Um, I believe there could be elements within the Russian government that are affiliated with, you know, this globalist ideology. He's, uh, President Putin has come out with some very strong worded speeches, um, uh, uh, deliberately uh, naming uh, globalists. And um, again, I think people should go back to his um, speech around February 24th or whenever that, he made a very powerful speech around the time of the commencement of the special military operation. I think that it, the the argument that, that some of the woke people put forth about Russia being a part of this like globalist agenda, it doesn't make sense to me because Russia has fought so hard to preserve its cultural integrity, you know, and and also to uh, keep some of this craziness that is infested in the West um, out of Russia, you know. Um, I, I don't. I just inherently don't believe uh, that. The, and and another thing, I would really recommend. Like there are people who've looked into, you know, the tech side of things far more than I ever could. So one argument I've heard is, well, you know, why is this happening? Why, why are certain tech things happening? 
And um, <clears throat> uh, a rational explanation I've heard is that, well, they're going to happen whether or not you like it, whether or not the president of Russia likes it. Certain technical advances are going to happen, but are they going to be used in the same way as, say, the Western global elites would like to use it? You know? And I don't believe I'm so. I'm with you. Yeah. Yes. Certainly, the... The sort of the pro the pro Putin camp says, yeah, look, he's standing up for Christian values, for family values, for tradition, yada yada yada. And the anti faction, and there are, there's a few bloggers who specialise in this, who sort of yeah. who purport to be from the middle the yeah. middle ground, who are just looking at it objectively. And what they all say is, look at his behaviour during the the fake pandemic. Look at you know, the these these kill shots, these evil vaccines were forced, were imposed on the Russian military, that he was, he is no good guy, he's just as bad. So well, maybe you, you can correct me on that. Well, I, I think I know who you're referring to without naming the person. I remember uh, that person was claiming all of the, um, what was the number of the conscripts, conscripted military, reservists? Well, I forget the number now. Was it was it 30,000? No, it was more than that. 200,000? Whatever. Whatever the number was. He was he was at one point claiming they were all forced to get the, the shot. Um, I, I spoke with people who had been called up and asked them, and they said no. Uh, and I remember also looking into it. I'd have to dig into um, what are the sources. But he actually, that same person went back and retracted, not a result of me, as a result of uh, what other people had said uh, correcting him. He, he did retract his claim that they were being forced to get it. Now, uh, whether uh, prior to that, I can't really speak to whether or not military were forced to get it, but I, I do know that I spoke to people who had recently joined or been called up, and they said, no, that absolutely okay. wasn't the truth. That's that's one thing. Um, and that person uh, has a variety of media they can rely on um, to fit their narrative. Um, I'm not really equipped because, as I said, yeah, I'm starting to understand a lot more Russian. I can read it slowly. I can speak it like a, a two-year-old. <laughs> um, but I'm not equipped. I'm not that familiar yet with all the media sources and um, who's funding them, which Western NED or other body is funding them, where, you know, where they're getting their motivations from. So I can't, I can't sit down. Plus, I, I have other things I want to focus on. I can't sit down and dissect every post the person makes. But I feel like they're cherry picking to suit their narrative. Um, who knows? I could be totally wrong. It's it's possible. Yeah. But um, I, I I don't trust uh, the information they're putting out. And talking of imponderables that we can only speculate on, I yeah. was a, a couple of years ago. I was really mustard keen to have Gonzalo Lira on mm. the podcast, and now I'm thinking, man, I I I don't think that. He could be detained by what's what's the Ukrainian security people called? SBU. The SBU, who who are like the Gestapo, aren't they? I mean, they're they're pretty, they're not lovely. Yeah. And for him to be detained and then released, um, I mean, I don't want him to die at all. But I'm I'm thinking, am, am I right to be suspicious here? I, I will again be given with a caveat. The, the things I'm going to say are my own thoughts. Um, when they're not my own thoughts, I'll refer to whoever you know I heard them from or agree with. But um, I had my, my doubts about him. And I also, like you, of course, wish him no ill. I, I hope that he's safe. 
Um, if he is in detention, I hope he's released and, and not tortured. When he um, disappeared last year, I was among the people very strongly advocating for him. He and I had communicated prior to that. In fact, a day or two prior to his disappearance, I don't remember, I'd have to look at my messages, we had communicated, and then he disappeared. Um, I went on RT advocating for his release. I uh, used my own platforms to advocate for his release. When he was released, uh, I was coming back from Mariupol that day. That's an aside, but basically I had no internet because at the time, now, now there's internet in Mariupol, but at the time, uh, outside of Donetsk, it was very sketchy. So I was kind of out of the loop. I remember coming back into Donetsk and seeing uh, one of the media platforms that dealt with him a lot announcing, oh, we have an exclusive interview, and then they had his uh, first reappearance. I found it strange how calm he was. I'm a very calm person because I've faced a lot of danger. Okay, not always calm, but in the face of danger, I have a weird, uncanny calm. I don't know where it comes from. It just is, which enables me to like be in places that are being bombed and keep my head about me. But for somebody, I don't know how calm I would be if I had allegedly been detained by the SPU, which, as you noted, is not known for their benevolence or their nice treatment of its detainees. It's noted for torture or disappearing people violently. Uh, so I found it very strange how calm he was when he reappeared. I found there was contradictions in his story. For example, first, he couldn't discuss any element of his uh, detention other than the fact that he was detained and under house arrest, I believe he said. Then uh, sometime later, he he told the particular media platform he was um, um, being interviewed by, he said, or in one of his YouTube videos, he said, oh, I sent all the documents to them, they've seen it. So I thought, well, that's weird, because you've already said you can't discuss any of the details. So sending your documents is literally not only discussing, but sharing information you cannot share. I found it strange that in Kharkov, of all places, where prior to his disappearance, he told me he was... Okay, I don't want to say terrified, but he was scared. He said, you know, the crazies are on the street. You don't know who is who's one of them or not. So in, in the text that he was sending me, uh, which I still have, he was scared. So I found it very strange that after allegedly being detained by one of the most notorious intelligence services, he's um, given his devices back. He, he claimed in one of his interviews... The, at first he said they were taken from him, then he said, well, they were taken and my passwords were changed, so I no longer have access to my initial Telegram or Twitter. But he was allowed to open new uh, Telegram, Twitter, and YouTube, which just doesn't jive. If he's being accused, which he apparently was being accused of being a Russian agent, why would he be allowed to have his devices, period, let alone open new platforms, gain you know tens of thousands of followers on each platform, do his streaming, continue to be critical of the government? It, you're just not allowed to in Ukraine. We know that. It doesn't make any sense. And not only do that for a short period, but for the next year. And then uh, after he did his um, stint to the border, I'm sorry, I am very skeptical. Um, it just, to me, it's illogical. I know the... The explanation put forth is that he took, you know, he did those three 15-minute videos because he wanted everybody to know the exact details of his detention and alleged torture before he tried to do a runner to Hungary to seek asylum. Okay, that's plausible, uh, but um, just an aside, in 2019 I went to Kiev, I think Feb 2019, to interview the lawyer of uh, Ukrainian journalist Kirill Vyshinsky, who was then being detained under um, pre-trial detention. He'd been in pre-trial detention for, in, by the end, before when he was actually released, it was over a year, maybe a year and a half. And I was, like I've just said, I don't get scared very easily, but I was pretty terrified in 2019, before all this got even worse. 
Uh, of course, I knew there were Nazi elements in Ukraine. I was I was terrified to be in Kiev. I was there for three days. I was looking over my shoulder everywhere I walked. I didn't go out at night. So I was, at that time, terrified. Now, I, I know it's easy for us to say, in the comfort of our own homes, if I was in his position, I wouldn't have taken an hour to do three videos and whatever time it took him to set up or whatever. Talking in English in an area that's not speaking English, most presumably, drying, flagging attention to yourself, I would have gotten the hell out of there whatever way I could have, or gone to the American Embassy, maybe, you know, in Kiev. So I don't know, the, the story doesn't line up. Uh, why was his ankle bracelet removed? Why were his passport and other documents given back to him? Why was he allowed to flee, you know, travel two days or whatever it was on his motorcycle? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't know what they fit. I'm not going to go as far as state he is some sort of intelligent asset. I don't know that. I just know it doesn't line up uh, with the reality of uh, what life is like in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was... Um... Oh, I'm sorry, James. There was one other thing I, I do feel hmm. is relevant. George Eliasson, an American investigative journalist living in Lugansk since maybe 2012, maybe prior to that, he um, he's a very good investigative journalist, and he did a couple of videos, so people can listen to him if they want to on his YouTube, George Eliasson. Um, but in in communicating with him and in his video, so I'm not divulging any anything he hasn't already made public, he stated that he spoke with two different journalists. He didn't say who, he didn't say where. My assumption is they're in the region, either in Russia or in, in Ukraine or in, in the Donbass, but I don't know that. That's my assumption. I could be wrong. He stated these two journalists uh, Lyra was in contact with and was trying to get information, I forget, I, I believe it was their address, information that somebody should not be asking a journalist that's why i think they're in the region because if they're in the states they'd be a little bit safer uh what i can say is that after his initial reappearance last year i did not follow his new twitter account because i was extremely suspicious and skeptical of him and i frankly just didn't wish him ill but didn't want anything to do with him and he spent a lot of effort trying to get to reel me in or get a hold of me i don't know uh he he had people messaging me saying he said he couldn't DM me on Twitter because I didn't follow him. My settings are such that he could have. And random people who I don't follow were DMing me saying he wants to talk to you. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't interested. He finally did start DMing me. I didn't reply. And he, he did say, why aren't you talking to me? Where are you? He made a, a rather large effort to get a hold of me and to get me on his round table. I don't know why. I mean, if, if I was blanking you, you'd probably say, oh, that's a shame. Eva doesn't want to talk to me. I guess I'll move on. But he didn't do that. So in light of what George Eliasson said, it does make me wonder why he was why he felt this urgency to try to get a hold of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 mm, interesting. Um, I, I used to do, until recently, um, a podcast with my old university friend, Toby Young. And... Whenever we got onto the topic of Ukraine, the conversation got very, very heated. And the last time we talked about it, um, Toby went into what I can only describe as a, as a rant about how evil Putin was and about how the Russians had committed so many atrocities against the Ukrainians. And I was thinking, well... At the very least, Tobes, you must be aware, or you ought to be aware, that there have been atrocities committed by the Ukrainians as well. Um, where, where are you on all that? Um, I cannot state whether individual soldiers in the Russian army have committed atrocities or not. It's a possibility. 
My belief and understanding is there is not a top-down directive to do so. And in fact, we see many, 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 many instances of Russian soldiers uh, either taking captive or um, are receiving Ukrainian soldiers who've uh, surrendered and treating them not only humanely, uh, but very humanely. Um, and I know Western uh, people and, and your friend Toby would say, well, that's just Russian propaganda. Yeah. There are so many instances of it. Uh, I don't believe it to be propaganda. Maybe one or two videos are propaganda. I believe it is just the way, again, the, the whole, he, he's not understanding that the Russians here b still view Ukrainians as their brothers and sisters. So there's there's more, it's more than, yes, they're at war, but I I, I don't, I can't speak to the ethics of each soldier or, or the, the management, the generals, but I believe there is a deep ingrained ethics that you treat the, the, those who have surrendered or you've captured humanely. We don't see that from the Ukrainian side. Not every Ukrainian soldier, of course, but we have seen videos of Russian soldiers being mutilated and executed by Ukrainian forces. Uh, so there's that. Um, now I've gone astray from your question. What was it again? <laughs> well, the, the, that was it, really. I mean, I wanted to know about the... the um the atrocities being committed. I mean, is it, is it just uh -huh. the, the militias? Is it Azov or is it is it across the board? Uh, it, definitely Azov, IDAR. There's other militias that are less well known, um, but also Ukrainian forces uh, committing the atrocities. And uh, I would again refer people to George Elias, and he's visited mass graves in the Donbass that would have been dug by Ukrainian forces and these extremist uh, militias. But the thing is, they're, the militias aren't independent. They're also integrated into the Ukrainian forces. So it's it's often hard to differentiate between them. There are many uh, testimonies from Mariupol of, of civilians talking, like, I guess it, we have to define atrocity. Is atrocity Ukrainian forces firing on civilians as they try to flee? I would say yes. But if that's not atrocity enough, if we're only talking about mutilations and beheadings, well, the, yes, the Ukrainian forces and these Nazi brigades have done that. Um, but I also think that, again, the well, now it's nine years of Ukraine uh, bombing civilians in the Donbass is an atrocity that's been going on for nine years. And um, I know when we were chatting, I sent you some links, just um, maybe you could share the one I, I wrote, what I've seen of Ukraine's war crimes uh, from 2019 until present. I mentioned the, the pedal mines, I mentioned 128. Okay, 128 isn't a huge number, but you consider the, the potential any time of a child stepping on one of these mines, or an animal, or an elderly person, which has happened. Um, and, and having their, their foot violently blown off. It's, I've seen some of the images after somebody stepped on one of these tiny mines. It's, it's horrific. Um, and you have uh, all the, the NATO weapons. Like the hotel I was in, in in August. Now, I'm not making this about myself. I'm making a point. On August 4th last year, I was in the Donbass Palace Hotel. Most of the time when I went to the Donbass, when I go to the Donbass, I rent, I rent a simple flat because it's cheaper. And it's, um, it's, it's uh, what's the word, in, in, not distinct. Nobody would know where I'm renting. Whereas the hotels are generally known to house journalists for the most part. At that time, I chose to be in the hotel to be near other journalists in case something happened so I could go with them because I don't have a car. You know, I have to rent my own taxi. And so just easier log logistically. And on the morning of August 4th, um, Ukrainian bombing started 200 meters from the hotel, and the last two shells landed 50 meters away and then directly next to the hotel, uh, killing a woman on the sidewalk and in the area killing five other civilians. 
Um, and that was with NATO weapons. That was 155 millimeter NATO um, caliber uh, weaponry, uh, which I, I've learned since are very um, uh, specific. The, like the the bombing got more closer to the hotel as as that the fifth one landed right next to the hotel. Uh, I think it's within the realm of possibility that the Ukrainian forces shelling uh, Donetsk on that day knew there were journalists there. I don't believe I was specifically being targeted, but I do believe it's possible that journalists, as well as civilians, of course, because that's the most important point, is civilians are being targeted all the time by Ukrainian shelling. But I do believe that was a possibility. Um, but I just had a couple more things I wanted to mention, like, um, you know, just as in Syria, there's so many parallels with the media reporting and, and lack of reporting, how they did in Syria, how they do uh, regarding Ukraine's war crimes. You know, uh, over the course of the war on Syria, we would often hear reports of the Syrian regime or Russian forces bombing civilians in, in, in hospitals in Aleppo, for example. There was the Eye and Children's Hospital complex in Aleppo, which was taken over by various terrorist brigades over the course of since 2012, 13 onwards. Um, and Aleppo was liberated in late 2016. Um, and they, they were using these hospitals as headquarters. They gutted them. They were no longer functioning as hospitals. They're functioning as terrorist headquarters. And uh, at least the Eye and Children's Hospital had a dungeon below, a prison below, with um, solitary confinement cells where both uh, Syrian soldiers and civilians were held and interrogated and tortured and eventually sometimes not always killed. You know, so the, the media would report, well, the Syrian government regime, they'd say, or Russians are bombing hospitals. And in, in the case where that particular complex was bombed, it was a legitimate military target because it was a terrorist headquarter. But you fast forward to, well, in, in Dara, southern Syria, uh, before the city was completely liberated, I went there, I forget which year, 2018 or so, and it was being shelled by terrorists, and I went to the state hospital, and it was very difficult to reach. The, uh, the taxi I was in had to gun it down like 100 meters or so, because there were terrorist snipers like 100 meters um, off to, I guess it would have been the right, west, or I'm not sure, I think it would have been the west. And half the hospital was out of commission from uh, terrorist bombing or the potential of terrorist sniping. You know, but the media didn't care to talk about that hospital. They didn't care when Ukrainian forces bombed uh, a Donetsk maternity hospital in June last year. I went there the morning after. Thankfully, people weren't killed because they'd been sheltering in the basement due to the intensity of the bombing. But, you know, that's a clear example of Ukraine targeting a hospital. And there were many other examples of Ukrainian forces targeting hospitals, schools, um, and other civilian infrastructure. Not a peep in the media. How do you? How do you? I mean, you you, you say that you've, you're you're blessed with an extraordinary calm in 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 danger. How do you? Um, how do you keep yourself together? Do you, I mean, I don't think I. Uh, I think it, I think it was born out of necessity when I was living in Gaza. Um, at the time, I was I was an activist and not a journalist, so I was I was blogging. Uh, I did eventually start writing articles for Interpress Services and eventually for Russia Today, but in the first years I was writing on my blog in Gaza. And uh, aside from documenting Israel's war in 2008-2009, which was horrific and the first time I saw war, and at that time no body armor whatsoever, and Gaza's a very small place, so really everything was a potential target with F-16s overhead, Apaches, warships, tanks, you know, everything you can imagine, drones, drones everywhere. The buzzing was horrific. 
Uh, but aside from that, our work, um, the other activists and I were um, accompanying farmers on, on their land in northern and eastern Gaza because even when they're like a kilometer away or 500 meters away from the fence that separates Gaza from the rest of Palestine, that the Israeli forces fire on them. So we often came under fire, not rubber bullets, not, not gas, but live ammunition, sniper fire. Um, they thankfully didn't kill us, but the intent was surely to frighten us because the bullets were literally whizzing past our heads and bodies. You could hear them. And this happened over the course of the three years I did this on many, many occasions. And I think it was during both the, my first experience with war and during those experiences with coming under Israeli sniper fire that uh, my body, it's not healthy, of course, psychologically, because really, you know, the fight or flight, right? And so I wasn't fleeing. I was literally standing there. Um, my body developed this calm. I don't know if I had that as a child. I don't know. It just developed at some point. So, I mean, do you do you have have a faith? Do you are, are you uh, religious? I'm not religious. I respect people who are religious. I just didn't grow up uh, with religion. Um, but I I don't know. It sounds cheesy. I do think somebody something's looking out for me because there are many many I many things by now. Yeah, where it was very close, and it's just you look back and you think, damn, that was close. Well, I think you know. I, I think that's that's even braver of you in a way because because I mean, if you're a Christian, um, yeah. You've got the consolation that you know you're going to go somewhere better, but mm -hmm. for you, it's, it's, you don't know that yet. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> no, I mean back back to this though. I think it's important. Uh, you know, back to what we're saying at the very beginning. How uh, those of us who have a different narrative, based most of the time in reality and and are on the ground uh, reporting or interviews, um, what people like Vanessa, myself, my colleagues. Um, who are doing this kind of reporting do, um, at least I'll speak for myself, and I think in, I think I can attribute this to Vanessa because I know her very well, it's because we're compelled to. It's not uh, out of career, you know, uh, ambitions, aspirations. I have no aspirations to be working for any media company. I happen to contribute op-eds to RT, and that's fine for me, but I'm also perfectly fine just having my little YouTube and Telegram channel. So I don't have career aspirations. I'm just glad to have platforms where I can share what I believe to be truth. Um, and I think that when you're driven by, um, it, it, at least it, it, I can say for myself, I'm driven by an urgency to expose as much, you know, of, of the, the, the war propaganda and also to share the voices who are being completely um, erased in, by corporate media. That I'm, I'm driven by that and, and also by the strong, having spent so much time in Syria and Palestine and now at the Donbass, a strong sense of just how wrong it is that these people are suffering so much and being killed and maimed and tortured for no reason other than these sadistic um, occupation or, or wars uh, that have nothing to do with human rights and all these virtue signaling hashtags that we're forced to read in every platform we open up, you know? So, and the hypocrisy, I really hate hypocrisy. It, it's like, it, it, it pisses me off and it motivates me <laughs> to work harder when, when I see one of these Western suits talking about their concern for whatever particular area or whatever, you know, particular leader is, is such an evil person. Because you know very well um, that when they want to over, overthrow a government or at least um, 
and throw the society into chaos, they have to vilify the leadership, they have to vilify the, the army. So all these claims of Russian soldiers raping babies, yeah, I'm sure you heard that kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah, eventually the woman behind it, I forget what her position, position in the Ukrainian government was, but she was fired because even, even that propaganda was too much for even for Ukraine, surprisingly. It, it's very interesting what you were saying about the truth because I think that's going to strike a chord with a lot of people watching. Because, like you, I get all sorts of accusations thrown at me that, that somehow I, I sort of shill for, for, for that I, I, that my business model is, is based on putting out the craziest story, the craziest conspiracy theories I, I, I can think of, or, or whatever, you know, that, that um, and you accused of being a, a Kremlin stooge or whatever and actually I think what unites all of us in the well it's the clues in the word the truth movement is that we place truth above all else we don't really care about the other things the material things and stuff I mean yeah. I mean it's nice I'd like a I'd like a Oleg Deripaska's yacht with a crew I guess maybe mm. um, but, but but it's not essential whereas the truth is absolutely essential to me I, I, I don't care where it, I'm not frightened and it's clearly the same with you. Yeah, and I, I, I again, I want to thank you. I, I hope I did it last time we spoke, but I, you know, thank you for having myself and other voices that are maybe not too popular on, on your show because you know, you're giving your um, audience a chance to have a different view, whether or not they're going to believe what I say, it's up to them. Um, always, you know, do more research, corroborate uh, whether what I'm saying jives with other people's reports. And if you don't like what I'm saying, that's fine. I, don't, I really don't care. I mean, I'm not trying to be dismissive. I don't mean I don't care in the sense like your opinion means nothing to me, people. What I mean is what I said before. I stand by uh, what I say and what I write. Um, if I make an error, of course, I will correct myself. But um, in terms of the, the overriding messages I'm putting out, I stand by it, you know. And um, people think by calling names it's going to stop uh, voices from speaking out, it won't. Being put on a kill list didn't stop, you know, me from going back to the Donbass. And even um, if if uh, all the platforms I contribute articles to said, no, we don't want you anymore. If I'm deplatformed on YouTube, okay, fine. I'll just go back to blogging. That's fine. You know, for me, I, it's just a compulsion from within. So uh, it's, it's nice to have a bigger platform to reach more people, but I'll still in the end do what I believe. And I, um, I, I, I no, I can speak for like, again, you, I mean, especially it's very interesting with you because you do have a background in uh, working with corporate yeah. media, right? So it's a very, you have a, an insight into that world. And why would you leave, if, if you're about clicks and all this stuff that you're being accused of, why would you leave what I imagine was probably a very stable and secure job environment to do what you're currently doing? Yeah, there was definitely, there was definitely more money in it. And also there was a kind of, there was a, a ready-built community of, of of people that you thought were kindred spirits. So, you know, you'd go to the spectator party and you'd talk to every year and you'd talk to all these journalists who you thought were like you and they were your friends and you could exchange gossip and stuff. I mean, it, 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 I must say I really enjoyed being a being in the journalistic mainstream so long as I wasn't aware of the truth. But once I became aware of the truth, that it is basically a lie machine, I couldn't play anymore. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. But I didn't know at the time. 
Yeah. That's why I asked you that question about how much are those journalists aware? Because I, I'm not sure, maybe I would have been different then, but I don't like living a lie. It's, I, I've always, mm-hmm. no, I, I, I couldn't sleep at night if I had to do that. Yeah. So as soon as I discovered that it was, it was wrong, I was out. So it was a no brainer I, I mean, me. Uh, when I spoke with a journalist who are aware, I, I guess I'm referring to ones who go somewhere near the place they're either to the place they're writing about or near it. I suppose it's 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 fair to say there could be journalists who are writing, you know, from their offices and getting lines from Reuters or from, you know, the various agencies and believing what they were taught in journalism school, whatever they were taught, you know, and believing that I'm sure there are journalists that are doing that and believing they're they're following, you know, the ethics of whatever, you know, they were taught and might honestly believe everything they're writing. I'm sure that's possible. But the ones that actually go um, to a site and, and see and just refuse to report what they've seen, they absolutely know they're lying. And I don't like yourself. I don't know how they can sleep and no. how they can live with themselves. Unless, unless they truly believe themselves, and I also, this is a mentality I can't comprehend, unless they truly believe themselves to be superior to Syrians or Russians or whomever, Palestinians, you know, there are people that have this belief, I'm, I'm superior to this particular body or religion or whatever. I don't understand that. I, and it doesn't justify lying, but I suppose in their minds it could justify. That's interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, because I was I was very very depressed after listening to the Douglas McGregor um, Tucker Tucker piece because uh, McGregor was of is of the view I don't know whether he's being unduly hysterical here he thinks that once we reach the point um, where there are no Ukrainian conscripts left to be fed into the meat grinder that NATO will move in and start sending our boys. I mean, as you know, the American deep state is heavily invested in this, particularly Victoria Newland, who seems to be leading American foreign policy, even though she's kind of... Who elected her? She's just a kind of apparatchik, isn't she, of the the Biden presidency. Um, But that... The the military-industrial complex is so invested in war, and Congress is a uniparty when it comes to voting for more money for more war and more yeah. weapons and more everything. Um, do you, where are you on where things are going? Do you think it's going to end up with, with the Third World War with the West? Or do you think there's going to be... Do you think that, that, that they're going to, the attrition is going to be such that the Ukrainian army is going to be effectively wiped out before before the West can move in, and I don't know. What do you think? Um, I'm, I would have to, I think, defer to uh, McGregor and other analysts. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I have to say, just simply, I don't know. I think the people that are pushing this war are crazy enough to ratchet it up to that level. But they also, I don't believe that they're crazy enough. I don't believe, one thing I disagree with some analysts about is I don't believe that the decision makers really truly believe that Russia is weak or Putin is weak. As you know, as we've heard um, analysts say like, oh, well, uh, they always, uh, not, the, not the analysts, but the, the Western decision makers, the powers that be, they really believed uh, Russia is weak. And, and no, I don't, I don't believe so. I think that's just a line they put out to dupe the public into supporting their wars and their whatever ambitions. 
but I do believe they could be crazy enough to push things. But and then as others have pointed out, well, you know, Russia has already made clear their red lines, um, which would definitely be uh, well. We already know there's Western. Um, there's my other dog here. Um, the, we I already love know the West in Ukraine. <laughs> I do too. They 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 keep me relatively sane. Well, they're lovely. Yeah, I know they're sweethearts. Um, so I, 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 I've kind of lost my train of thought somehow here. Um, I, I don't know. I hope it doesn't come to that, but um, it's it's really hard to say these days. It's really, who knows? Yeah, well, I guess I'm going to have to have to bite the bullet and do the Douglas McGregor interview. Although, I mean, it, it gets very hard when you're uh, the parent of, of of boys who would be cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. For yeah. this, for, for 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 the meat grinder, and you know that they 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 would be sent out there to die for no purpose, yeah. other than as a kind of blood sacrifice for the satanic elites with their ancestral hatreds of Russia. Nothing more than that, you know. So their beef with their ancestral beef is going to be the cause for our children to die. I mean, I yeah. you know, I don't want the Ukrainians to die. I don't want Russians to die. It's 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 the purest evil. Absolutely, it is. It's it's entirely pointless. Um, there's re- there's really no words for how evil it is. Uh, this should never have happened. And uh, again, uh, the the the, <laughs> um, the 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 guilt is really truly on the West who instigated the coup in the first place. And not not only in Ukraine, but everything. It's all tied together, right? What they're doing in Syria, they continue to punish the Syrian people for for their crime of not allowing their government to be toppled. Uh, I you know. know it, Respect to the Syrians. What 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 an ex- what an incredible people they must be. Incredible, and they're suffering so hugely now. The inflation is just out of control. Like I'm not even. I'd have to check with Vanessa to see you know the exchange rate or the the dollar to lira right now is. But people can't afford to live. It's just uh, it's horrendous, and they just the West just keeps making it worse for them. So I mean, they're 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 capable of um, incredible cruelty, um, immense cruelty, endless cruelty, and uh, they're they're literally sociopaths. So I don't know. Back to your question, um, I don't know how this is going to end. And with that, James, I'm really sorry, but not only no. are my dogs are demanding my attention, but I've I've actually got to get going. Thank you. It's Eva. It's been great. Well, well worth the wait. Thank you. Oh, thank um, you. Go, go and have a walk <laughs> with your you. dogs, and and thank you, thank you so much for all your all you've been doing. Yeah. Um, well, where can you. people find you, find your stuff? Um, well, I don't know if you have my Telegram channel. I can send you a link to it. It's Eva K. Bartlett yes. Reality Reality Theories, and uh, I you know I have a blog. I'm not a blogger per se. I only basically use the blog to republish articles I've written or interviews I've done. So best place is really Telegram, but if people are not on Telegram, if they're on Twitter, I'm active there and also my blog would be good and my YouTube, yeah. Okay, I'll do that. And thank you everyone for listening and thank you for watching. Uh, please carry on supporting me on on locals, on Subscribestar, on on um, buy me a coffee. Uh, all those various outlets. I really appreciate your support. And, uh, you know, the, the, there are bad guys against us who want to close people like me and Eva down. Please don't let them get away with it. Please support us as best you can. Thank you very much. <laughs>